0: The New Testament reading is from the book of Mark, chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Sloan bought spices, so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb." For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing more to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Be
1: to God. One ancient hope, it's, it's good to be with you on this Easter morning as we come together to, to celebrate the resurrection of our, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so before we turn to this text that proclaims to us this gospel hope of resurrection life, let us come before the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise that it proclaims. And Father, we ask that your, your spirit would be among us as we, as we di- dig into this text, Lord, that it would cause us to understand and to know Lord, this text more fully, to love it more deeply, and and Lord, to cling to it more fiercely, this promise of life that you have given to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. Well, looking at this passage, uh, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, he, he points out something interesting. He says that when the three women, when they come to the tomb, they suppose that their main problem is how will this stone that's blocking the tomb, how will this stone be moved away? In fact, if you look at the text, the only dialogue we we find between the three women is who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And they brought with them expensive sets of spices to come and to anoint the dead body to finish this burial process and and to see off the body of this figure that they followed for these past years. Here lies a, a good man that fell victim to a corrupt system. Another tragic hero, they think, who died for what he believed in. And in fact, the Greek word for tomb is very similar. It comes from the word for remembering. And in fact, the Greek word for tomb might be literally translated as token of remembrance. And when bodies are anointed for burial, we slow the process of decay. We slow the natural breakdown of the body. We help remember. We help to memorialize this person. And so the women come to the tomb to remember Jesus, and as long as they can to keep the memory of Jesus alive. They want to make sure that a life of such a great man will not soon be forgotten. And so they believe that their greatest problem is, how will the stone be rolled away? How will they complete this process of memorializing Jesus How will they fight against his being forgotten? How will they make sure that the story of this heroic man is told to future generations? How can they do that unless they finish the process of establishing this token of remembrance? But we have to ask ourselves, what would it mean if the story of Jesus simply stopped here? We find a man who loved God and neighbor in unflinching, uncompromising, and surprising ways, who stood up against injustice, who never ceased to heal and to help the hungry and the poor, who knew the scriptures better than those who were publicly recognized as the teachers of scripture. And what happened to him? Well, he was killed. All of his closest followers deserted him. And his dear friend Peter denied him three times, denied that he even knew him at the hour of his death. He was arrested in secret, and he was convicted on false charges, and he was killed by crucifixion, a terribly painful and terribly shameful death. So then what would we find in this story if it stops here? Well, it's not the victory of the human spirit, we find a person deserving our greatest adoration being subjected to the betrayal of his closest companions in death by the powers that be. If this is the story that the women seek to remember and to memorialize, if this is why they've come to the tomb, then this is not a story of hope. The moral of the story would be don't stick your head up, keep your head down, don't step out of line with the status quo, just play the game and don't expect too much. Otherwise, you might just be crushed like Jesus. And to return to N.T. Wright, the women believe that their main problem is how to move away the stone. But Wright says that actually their main problem lies elsewhere. He says their original intention to anoint the body was itself a problem. To come to anoint the body is to assume that Jesus is dead, that the story is over, that things as they now stand should be remembered and memorialized. And to seek to remember and to memorialize a story that ends here, that ends in the tomb, that ends in this token of remembrance, well, that itself is a problem. Mm. And it's a problem we all share, and perhaps it's actually a bigger problem for us than it was for these three women at the tomb. Because to memorialize this story cannot do anything else but lead us into cynicism. The more virtuous you are, the harder you fall. Yet the women of the tomb come there with heavy hearts. They realize that this is a tragedy and they weep. They didn't want Jesus to die. They hate the fact that Jesus died. Yes, they've come to accept it and they will memorialize Jesus' life, but they wish it had been different. Not so us. We've come to the point that we largely refuse to fight cynicism. We give in to it, and even as a culture, we come to admire it. For instance, in, in commenting on our, our culture's wide embrace of a cynical posture, the novelist David Foster Wallace, he, he says the following. Sarcasm, parody, absurdism, and irony are great ways to strip off stuff's mask and show the unpleasant reality behind it. All we seem to want to do is keep ridiculing stuff. Postmodern irony and cynicism become an end in itself, a measure of hip sophistication and literary savvy. Few artists dare to try to talk about the ways of working toward redeeming what's wrong because they'll look sentimental and naive to all the weary ironists. Irony's gone from liberating to enslaving. There's some great essay somewhere that has a line about irony being the song of the prisoner who's come to love his cage. That's a powerful image. Irony, sarcasm, cynicism as the song of prisoners who've come to love their cage. And to be sure, we have many reasons be cynical. I mean, just to name a few, we have social tensions that have reached a fever pitch. We have the difficulties of living in a COVID pandemic. We have extreme political polarization. We have inflation, economic insecurity, economic uncertainty. Uh, We have an epidemic of loneliness, and we have the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Again, just to name a few. And so it makes us ask, is is life simply trying to make the best of a few horrible decades before death snuffs us out of existence, of meaning, of significance, of remembrance? Well, if so, then cynicism makes complete sense. It teaches us not to want too much. Cynicism is that song that makes us feel comfortable in a world that we think stands against our deepest hopes and deepest longings. It teaches us to say, if you actually think that things could be different, well, that's only going to disappoint. Cynicism teaches us that the smaller our desires, the better off we'll be. Think about it. If we're trapped in a prison cell, hoping for more, hoping for better, Hoping for uh, liberation, well, that's only going to make each day in the cell even harder. Hope, we think, can only break our hearts. And so we too assume that our main problem is, is how to move the stone away. How best to remember and to memorialize the bad things that happen so that others will learn to keep their heads down and not expect too much. But is that true? Is it true that, that hope can only break our hearts? Is it true that we're stuck between a hard place with cynicism on one side and heartbreak on the other? Zina hits in, in her new book, Lost in Thought. She, she tells the story of, of the Russian dissident Irina Ratushinskaya, who made poetry a means of resistance in her 1980s Soviet prison cell. And on things like bars of soap and, and cigarette paper, she, she scratched her poetry and she shared it with her fellow prisoners. These were words that pushed against the love of the cage, that pushed against any love, any cynical acceptance of the way that things were. And as Hits writes of the poet, her discomfiting enthusiasm shines through in her writing about her prison experiences. Enthusiasm for defiance of her captors, for forming a community with other prisoners, and for preserving her dignity and that of her companions against deprivation and insult. And I'm sure her, her poetry is hard words to hear. The more you believe those words, the more you refuse to come to terms with being a prisoner. The more you believe those words, the less comfortable you are with your circumstances. The more you believed those words, the more you were confronted by the possibility that things could be different. Her words were not the love song of the prisoner who has come to love the cage, but the song of the prisoner who has refused to accept the cage. Yet when we confront words like this, or or better put, when words like this confront us, We have a choice, and it's easier to reject them. It's easier to give way to cynicism. I I came across one recent article, and it, it said the following. Cynicism seduces us because it's easy. It doesn't actually feel good, but it feels comfortable because it doesn't ask anything from us. Hardened cynics sometimes see themselves as the intellectually honest among us, having real insight into people and problems. But it's simply not true. Cynicism requires no deep digging, real reflection, or soul-searching. It's the easiest thing in the world to call the world a dumpster fire, toss up our hands, and say, well, everything and everyone sucks, so what's the point? And we might think these words, these cynical words, are hard words. Yes, they're heavy words. Yes, they burden us. But they are easy words. If everything and everyone is terrible and the whole world is just one big dumpster fire, well, then there's no point to try to make anything different, let alone better. Again, cynicism doesn't feel good, only comfortable. It removes our responsibility, and it pushes us to merely accept things the way they are. In the poetry of Ratushin's Kaya, her words were not comfortable words. Her poetry called her companions to resist resigning to their imprisonment. They were words of hope, but, but a word of hope is not an easy word. Yes, it's a good word, but it's a word that calls us to action to do something, to not just accept the circumstances we find ourselves in. A word of hope is a great word. It's a word for which we long, but it's not an easy word. And this is what we find at the tomb of Jesus. When the women come to the tomb, they find that the stone has already been moved away. And so they enter and they find a young man sitting there who is probably an angel. Jesus is nowhere to be seen. They're frightened. This is not what they expected to happen. And so the young man says to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. This is a word of hope. This is a word that cuts against the world being one big dumpster fire. Yes, Jesus was killed. Yes, Jesus was laid in the tomb, but he's no longer here. He has risen. And we shouldn't fall victim to to a kind of chronological snobbery here. Just like us, people 2,000 years ago did not expect dead bodies to rise again. But if Jesus is risen, if this has actually happened, then death does not have the last word. And this is a new kind of hope. And in fact, this is so great a hope that we dare not speak it. There's a scene in Ezekiel 37. We we, we heard it read at the beginning um, of the service. Ezekiel finds himself in a valley of dry bones. Death surrounds Ezekiel here. He looks at the bones and he sees what he will become. He sees what the women at the tomb expect Jesus to become, he sees what all of us will one day become. And perhaps you've had the sobering experience of, of walking through a graveyard and, and being struck by the realization that one day this will be you. If not, I'd, I'd encourage you to take a walk through, through Oakland Cemetery this spring. And this is a bit of what Ezekiel is experiencing here. Here. Ezekiel faces the still silence of death. He looks at the bones and he sees himself. He sees every reason to be cynical. It doesn't matter, it seems, how these persons lived. All of them are now dry, lifeless bones. They're forgotten, no token of remembrance. No tomb will ever be erected so that we can remember who these people were. But God breaks the still silence of death and he asks Ezekiel a question, can these bones live? And this is a question that presents a hope that's beyond the walls of the world. It's a question that makes us wonder whether or not the caged imprisonment of human life under death is something to be merely accepted. However, this is a hope too great for any mere human to utter. Ezekiel doesn't actually answer the question. He doesn't dare speak a hope so great. Ezekiel actually puts the question back to God. This is a hope that only God can speak. And so Ezekiel says, O Lord God, you know only God knows the hope that God offers to us. Only God can speak a word so great, and God does. He brings these bones back to life with breath and flesh and skin and sinew. Yes, Ezekiel, these bones can live However, when God asks Ezekiel the question, he does not actually address the prophet by the name Ezekiel. He asks, son of man, son of man, can these bones live? And God is certainly addressing Ezekiel here, and and the term appears to be used uh, to speak of the humanity of Ezekiel. Literally, in the Hebrew, what we find here is son of Adam. And perhaps this reminds us of the use of son of Adam or or daughter of Eve in the the Chronicles of of Narnia. And it's a way that Lewis will use to refer to humans in that story. And Ezekiel is a human. He's the descendant of of Adam and Eve. But this term comes to take on a more specific use in Scripture. For instance, we find son of man being used as a very specific title for a very specific figure in Daniel chapter 7. As one commentator writes of this usage of Son of Man, the kingdom of God is brought in by the mediation of a heavenly Son of Man, a human figure who restores dominion to the people of God. The Son of Man is the one who brings about God's plans and God's purposes, and if God plans and purposes to make these bones live, well, it's the Son of Man who's going to have to bring it about. And so we have to ask, who is the Son of Man? Well, in the Gospels, Jesus himself identifies himself as the Son of Man. And he does so, He speaks of the Son of Man as, as both a, a figure who experiences both lowliness and greatness. For instance, in Mark 10:45, Jesus says, "The Son of Man came to be, uh, sorry, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." Jesus will give his life and Jesus will die and, and he will do so for the sake of others as a kind of, of ransom. But we also see Jesus speaking of the Son of Man as a title of greatness. For example, as examples, he's examined by the council, the council who will put him to death. In Mark 14, he says the following. We find the following exchange. The high priest asked Jesus, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. And so here the Son of Man is presented as a triumphant figure, a figure coming in victory and power, so much so that the high priest understood this as Blasphemy, understood it as Jesus making himself equal with God, understood it as Jesus calling himself divine, and in this, the high priest is exactly right. And what Jesus says and what the high priest rightly understood but wrongly responded to is that the Son of Man is both human and God, which brings us back to Ezekiel's question, the question he dared not answer. Son of Man, can these bones live? And again, only God dare answer this question. Only God knows the plans he has for us. Only God can speak such hope. Yet the true Son of Man is God in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God, the Son, become human, and he can answer this question. In fact, Jesus Christ just is the answer to this question, and again and again, he's told his disciples that yes, these bones can live, and these bones will live. As the angel tells the women in the tomb, go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Yes, these bones can live. Just as he told you, just as he told you that he would die and give his life as a ransom for many and raise again, be raised again on the third day, just as Jesus told you again and again, yes, these bones can and will live. And these are words of great hope, but they're also hard words. These are words that cast out cynicism. Yes, cynicism is easy. Yes, cynicism is comfortable. It doesn't ask anything at all from me. But words of hope, these are hard words. And in particular, these are very hard words for Peter. Remember, Peter denied Jesus three times. The women of the tomb we see here, they're bravely identifying themselves publicly with Jesus by coming to the tomb. But Peter has, has publicly renounced any association with, with Jesus by denying him three times. If Jesus is dead, well, well, Peter is off the hook. If Jesus is dead, yes, Peter lied, but so did Jesus. Peter might think, I, I know I said I didn't know Jesus, but, but, but Jesus also lied. He said that he would be raised again from the dead, and he even said strange things about he himself being God. And this is the comfort of the cynic. Yes, I've done bad things, but I'm not any worse than this or that person. Yes, I took this shortcut in my financial practices, but, but everybody does it. Yes, I missed family at dinner again because of work, but, but some spouses aren't even around on the weekends. Yes, I bought another thing I don't really need, but you know what? Most people aren't even living within their means. Yes, I don't know my neighbors, but, but this person, they don't even cut their lawn. Yes, I denied Jesus, but most of the other disciples, they didn't even make it to the trial. Yes, I denied Jesus, but you know what? I did three times what he's been doing to me for the last three years. The state of mind doesn't make us feel good, only comfortable. There's no joy here, only ease. But now, the young man at the tomb, he singles out Peter specifically. He instructs the three men to go tell the others and Peter that Jesus, the risen Son of Man, is on his way to Galilee. Yes, these are words of great hope, but they're also hard words. This means that Peter will have to reckon with his past, with his three denials. He'll have to confess what he's done wrong. He'll have to confess that Peter's own deepest reason for cynicism is his own heart. And he'll have to acknowledge, acknowledge his own cowardice in the face of, of the women's bravery. Because Christ has risen, there are demands placed upon Peter. Peter must repent, he must confess his sins, and these are hard actions. And actually, there, there's perhaps no greater countercultural action in our modern moment than admitting that we've done wrong and admitting that we need forgiveness. But Peter and we can do this because of the hope that Easter offers. Hope alone enables us to do such hard things. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Peter's denial does not surprise Christ. Peter and all of us, we've all been denying God our whole life. Peter's heart has ever been his own greatest reason for cynicism. This is why Christ came, to ransom Peter and to ransom us. The death of Christ on the cross where he suffered the wrath of God, where he suffered what we deserved for each and every way we ourselves have denied God. Well, this is why Christ came, why he lived the perfect life of love, loving God and neighbor perfectly. And he offered this perfect life on the cross for our behalf, as a ransom for many. And can we look into our own hearts and can we see the envy and the spitefulness and the bitterness and all of the self-justifying impulses? Can we realize that our own hearts are dumpster fires? Can we realize that our own heart is our own deepest reason for cynicism? If so, then we come to see the very reason why Christ died. and the resurrection, it tells us that God has accepted the offering of Christ on our behalf. The resurrection is proof that Christ has truly taken our punishment and has given us the blessing of eternal life. And all we need is faith in Christ. By faith, we trust in Christ's work that He has taken our guilt and given us his righteousness. By faith, we undertake the hard work of confession and repentance because we have the sure hope of forgiveness. There's no true faith without repentance, nor is there any true faith without hope. And by faith, we receive God's promise of resurrected life. Yes, these bones are Yes, our bones can and will live. And it's true, unless we're alive when the Son of Man returns in power, we will die. But like Christ, we will rise again. And so what does this message mean for us? Well, consider what it meant for these three women. In verse eight, we find, and they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. And scholars debate whether this is the true ending of of Mark, though pretty much all scholars agree that that what might appear in your Bible is is Mark 16, 19 through 20, that that's a later edition, that that's not written by Mark. But a number of scholars do believe that there was another ending to Mark that's been lost. Personally, I I think that verse 8 is the actual ending. First, I, I trust God's providence in preserving His word for His people, and secondly, I see the ending as functioning as a kind of invitation for us to join the women in their mission. Because at the time of Mark's writing, we know that Mary and Mary and Salome, they shared this message, they broke their silence. But here in the tomb, they are afraid. And being afraid is a very significant action in Mark's Gospel. We find the disciples afraid in Mark 4 after Jesus calms the storm. We find the disciples afraid in Mark 5 after Jesus heals the demoniac. We find the disciples afraid in Mark 6 when he walks on water. But there's also other kinds of things that make the disciples afraid. We find them afraid in Mark 9 when Jesus tells them the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men And they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. We find the disciples afraid again in Mark 10 as they follow Jesus on the road to Jerusalem, as they follow Jesus down the road of suffering. And so, what makes them afraid? It's the true identity of Christ, of the one who controls the waters of creation and overpowers the forces of evil. And what else makes them afraid? Well, it's the shape of Jesus' mission. Yes, it's a mission of victory, but first he will suffer and die. What makes them afraid? Well, it's that the God of the universe will lay down his life, and that means they, too, will be called to lay down their life. Why are they afraid? Because they realize that Christ does not make their life easier. He makes it harder And this is the fear of the women at the tomb that they are beginning to come to terms with. It would have been so much easier simply to memorialize Jesus and give way to cynicism. But the hope of the resurrection means that we too are called to live like Jesus, to love God and neighbor in such an uncompromising way that we will often find ourselves at odds with our culture, with the status quo, with our own view of what our comfortable life should be. And so the full implications of this Easter hope should make us afraid. If we've never felt that sting of fear, we should ask whether we've truly counted the cost. If this hope is true, we will find ourselves sharing a message that at times our culture, that at times our own hearts would rather not hear. It's a message that breaks the prisoner's love for the cage and rescues us from the comfort of cynicism. And these women, they chose the hard and joyful path. They rejected the easy descent into cynicism. And how is it that we know? Well, Tim Keller makes the point that the Christians actually lost the tomb. We have no idea where Jesus is buried. And that's because he didn't need to be memorialized Christ is alive. He's reigning at the right hand of God the Father. He's present to us in the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ is risen, and so he doesn't need to be remembered. He needs to be worshiped here and now. And so the women proclaim a living Savior rather than the memory of a tragic hero. And so what is the Easter message like? Well, it's both hard and hopeful, It's like a a great blast from a war horn. There's a scene in in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings where where a great battle is going badly. The people of of Gondor are are falling uh, falling to the evil forces of, of Sauron. Orcs beat down on the city and its people. But just then, when all seems lost, there's a great horn that blows. The riders of Rohan have answered Gondor's call of distress. Mounted on horses, they charge through the battlefield. Suddenly, the tide of the battle shifts. Suddenly, everything has changed. And upon hearing this horn, Tolkien writes the following about Pippin, one of the hobbits who has given himself to the defense of Gondor. Pippin rose to his feet as if a great weight had been lifted from him. And he stood listening to the horns, and it seemed to him that they would break his heart with joy. And never in after years could he hear a horn blow in the distance without tears starting in his eyes. It would have been the easiest thing in the world to simply lay down and die. But a horn is a message of hope, and it calls Pippin to rise and to carry on the good fight. Yes, fighting on is the harder path. But what else can hope call us to? Hope is a hard word, but there's no better word that we can hear. There's no other sound that Pippin would rather hear. And this is what Easter is. Easter is a great horn blast to a weary world, a world in which death and cynicism seem to have the upper hand. Yes, it would be the easiest thing in the world to give in to both, But with Easter, the tide of the battle has shifted. Yes, it will be hard to carry on, to fight, to love, and to serve others just as Jesus did, to suffer as Jesus did, to confess and repent because of what Jesus did. But we do so because of the great word of hope that by faith alone in Christ, we receive the promise of victory and resurrected life. And indeed, the battle is already won. Those skirmishes continue. Christ is already reigning, and one day he will return in power with the clouds of heaven to set all things right and to make all things new, ourselves included. Are you weary? Are you discouraged? Are you sorrowful? Are you on the verge of cynicism and despair? Well, let the horn blast of Easter stir you with the hopeful promise that these bones, our bones, can and will live. Pippin rose to his feet as if a great weight had been lifted from him, and he stood listening to the horns, and it seemed to him that they would break his heart with joy. And never, never, In after years, could he hear a horn blown in the distance without tears starting in his eyes? Let the same be true for us every time we hear that Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for Easter. We thank you, Lord, that you have given your Son as a ransom for many. We thank you, Lord, that he died the death that we should have died, that he lived the life that we should have lived, and that, Lord, you raised him from the dead. We know that his perfect offering has been accepted, and if we put our faith in him, we have that same confidence. We have that same hope in resurrected life, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.